Tonight's scripture is from Mark 1, um, verses 14 through 20. It's found on page 8 of your bulletin. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. As we've been saying each week, we live in a culture in which everyone seems to be talking about Jesus and wants some sort of connection to him, but everybody wants connection on their own terms. But, as we've been saying, uh, a Jesus that's your own creation, a Jesus that's a projection of your own uh, desires, uh, is really just you and therefore is not a Jesus that can challenge you or Uh, contradict you or change you and therefore can't transform you, can't really help you. If you're going to have a Jesus that will help you, he has to have his own reality. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels of the New Testament, were written as the apostles and the original eyewitnesses of Jesus' life were dying off, and these accounts were written down in order to give access to the real Jesus, the, the Jesus that really has lived on the earth, uh, to us all. And Mark is the first of those four, and that's why we're looking at it. And today, this is the third week we've been looking at the book of Mark, and tonight we see for the first time we hear Jesus' voice. For the first time we actually hear Jesus speak. And almost immediately, the first thing he says is, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom and follow me. Immediately, the, almost the first words out of his mouth he calls us to follow him. And this is unique, virtually unique in uh, Jewish tradition because uh, pupils chose rabbis. Rabbis did not choose pupils. Rabbis did not go around. And you won't even find this of, of the sages or the prophets. You won't see M- Moses doing this or, or uh, the others doing this. Students, you might say pupils, sought out the rabbi. You would choose the rabbi and come in and make the initiation and say, I want to study with you. Rabbis didn't go out, but Jesus is showing us, and Mark is showing us, that you have, cannot have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. And when he calls these men, not only are their lives totally changed, but the history of the world is totally changed. You know that. What you're reading here changed the history of the world, and therefore... Jesus' call is a powerful thing. So if you can't relate to Jesus without a call, and his call is that powerful, we better understand it. And, and what we learn about his call here in this uh, passage are four things. We learn that his call is different from others. It's different, it's drastic, it's developmental, but it's doable, though dangerous. Okay? So it's uh, different, it's drastic, it's developmental, but it's doable. First of all, it's different. It's different because of these two words, gospel or good news that comes up twice, and kingdom. He says, repent and believe the good news. He, speak, he proclaims the good news or the gospel of God. Now, of course, this word evangel, evangelon, which is the Greek word, it's translated 
gospel or good news. And it's got the word angelon in it, which is the word for news, an event of something that happened. And the word eu, the prefix eu, which means joyful. So news that brings joy. It was not, uh, back then, this word was, uh, had currency, but it wasn't religious currency when Mark used it. It was a word that meant uh, some history-making, life-shaping news, not just daily news. So, for example, we have an inscription about, for, about the same time as Jesus and Mark. We have, a, we have an ancient Roman ex- inscription that starts like this, and I find this so striking. It starts, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's the story of Caesar Augustus's birth and his coronation. And so a gospel was some history-shaping event that changed everything. It could be a coronation. It could be uh, the ascension to the throne. And it also could be a victory because um, when Greece was invaded by Persia and when, when the, the Greeks won the great battle of uh, Marathon and the great sea battle of Salamis, when they won those battles... They sent heralds. They basically sent evangelists, runners who brought the news to Athens and to Sparta and all the city. And these evangelists, they, they proclaimed the good news. And they said, uh, we have fought for you and we won and now you're free. You're not slaves, you're free. Now that's the gospel right there. A gospel is something's happened in history, something's been done for you that changes your status forever. Something happened in history and has been done for you that changes your status forever. And right there you see the difference between Christianity and all other religions, or no religion. Because the essence of other religions is advice. Other religions are basically advice. Christianity is basically gospel. Other religions basically say, this is what you have to do, this is what you must accomplish, this is how you have to live in order to be saved. But the gospel is basically, this is what has been done in history. This is what has been accomplished. This is the life that Jesus lived and died for you that you may be saved. And therefore, Christianity is completely different. And the gospel call is is a call of grace. And that's the reason why it's joyful tidings. When you stand in front of advice on how you need to live, if you, if you hear someone saying, here's the love you ought to have, and here's the integrity you ought to have, and they present you the great moral standards, and, they, and maybe they do it in a very inspiring way by showing you a story of some great moral exemplar. But when you stand before uh, the uh, advice for how you live, how, how you ought to live, how does it make you feel? Inspired, sure. But f- do you feel the way the listeners that heard those heralds felt when they announced the victory? Do you feel like your burdens have fallen off? Do you feel like something's been done for you, that now you're not a slave anymore? Of course you don't. When you hear some great presentation of advice on how you had to live, it might inspire you, but of course it, it's, it's not a gospel. It weighs you down. This is how I have to live. The gospel is that God accepts you not on the basis of your past, but on Christ, the basis of Christ's past, not on the basis of what you have done, what you have performed, but what he has accomplished in history for you. And that makes it absolutely different. And the second reason why the call of Jesus is utterly different than the call you have into religion or into morality is this word kingdom. This word kingdom. Um, what's it about when it says 
the good news is the kingdom of God is near. If you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that we were built to live in a perfect world in which all relationships were whole, psychologically perfect, socially perfect, the relationships were perfect, the relationship with ourselves, with others, with God, with nature, with the physical world was perfect because God was the king. But we're told in Genesis 3, and this is the story of the human race, that we have chosen to be our own kings. We have chosen to be our own lords, our own masters. We have gone the way of self-centeredness. And when our relationship with God unraveled, all other relationships unraveled because self-centeredness is a thing that destroys all other relationships. Think of it. First of all, psychologically, there is nothing that makes you more miserable than self-absorption. Nothing that makes you more miserable than, than, than being absorbed and upset. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? Uh, there's nothing more miserable. There's nothing more psychologically disintegrating than self-centeredness. There's nothing more socially disintegrating. Why do we have wars? Why do we have class struggle? Why do we have family breakdown? Why do we have our relationships constantly exploding? It's because of self-centeredness. It's the darkness of self-centeredness. It's the, it's the, uh, uh, when we decided to be our own king, everything fell apart. Our, relation, our, physically, our relationship physically, our relationships socially, our relationships spiritually and psychologically. But... Every culture is characterized by legends and epics and stories, and they're all different, and yet they all have a theme. A true king, a true prince will come back. Slay the dragon, kiss us and wake us out of our sleep of death. Free us from our, you know, prison, our tower prison. A true king will come back. A true prince will come back and put everything right. And the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, is the good news that Jesus is that true king. And he's come back the first time in weakness to die for us, but he'll come back again in strength. And when we come in under the healing of Jesus, you know that place in Tolkien? where it says the hands of the king are healing hands and thus shall the rightful king be known. When you come in under the royal hands and the royal, the royal submit, when you come back under the kingship of Jesus, everything will begin to heal. And when he comes back, everything sad will come untrue. Fear will be gone. Suffering will be gone. Tears will be gone. The human race will be reunified. Poverty will be gone. Injustice will be gone. Hunger will be gone. Disease will be gone. Death will be gone. Disfigurement will be gone. And when you get to there, that's the new heavens and new earth, you are going to say, I'm home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Now, here's what's so different about this. The good news of the kingdom, again, differentiates non-religion and other religions from those who believe the Bible. Because all other religions, except the religions of the, of the religion of the Bible, all the religions say that this material world is uh, going to be saved out of it and go into a kind of pa- ethereal spiritual paradise. Or some religions say that this material world is an illusion. And, of course, if you don't believe, if you have no religion or if you're a secular person, then you believe that everything here is going to burn up in the death of the sun and everything that happens here is going to disintegrate. It's going to be as if it had never been. 
But the Bible says this material world was created by God, and he's going to renew it, and it's going to last forever. Those who believe the Bible have an attitude toward this material world, toward food and drink and toward the body and toward this material creation that is more positive and more hopeful than any worldview could possibly afford. And you see, if salvation in Christianity, if the purpose of salvation is not the escape from the material creation, but the renewal of the material creation, the purpose of salvation is not to get us out, but to renew what we're in, then not only forgiveness of sins and not only salvation of the soul, but fighting poverty and fighting disease and fighting hunger is part of God's agenda. And so to be called by Jesus to live out the gospel of grace and of a new world coming, the world we all want under the king, it's different. Oh, it's different. It's not just morality. It's not just being good. It's not just, you know, pardon, not just going to paradise. It is different. It is so world-affirming. It is so you-affirming. It is so affirming. See? It is so radical. So, first of all, the call of Jesus is different. Secondly, though, the call of Jesus is drastic. Now, first of all, he goes to Peter, Simon, and Andrew, and he says, Come, follow me. And at once they left their fishing, their nets, and followed him. And then he goes to James and John, and he says, Follow me. And they leave behind their father in the boat, Zebedee, in the boat. Now, we know from reading the rest of the Gospels that they did fish again. (laughs) Not that they never fished again. And we also know from the Gospels that they didn't never talk to their parents again. But what Jesus is saying is so radical. See, in our individualistic culture, saying goodbye to our parents isn't the big deal, but having Jesus say, I want priority over your career that's drastic. In traditional cultures, however, the career is not that important. It's father, it's mother, it's family. That's where you get your identity. And when Jesus Christ says, I want priority over your family, that's drastic. Jesus is saying, resembling me, pleasing me, serving me, knowing me, must become the supreme passion of your life. And everything else, all these other things, see, have to be rejiggered to maximize that, your relationship with me. Everything else comes second. Now, right away when we read this or we hear this, I think what comes up into many of our minds is the shadow of fanaticism. When you see Jesus talking like this, I think one of the great barriers, it's certainly in the last few years in a place like New York, a lot of barriers, one of the great barriers people have when they consider a church like Redeemer, when they consider a, um, a Christianity, is people are afraid of fanaticism. And for good reason, really. You look out in the world and look at the violence that is being done by highly religious people, people who you know, have these strong religious beliefs. And you don't even have to go look at something that drastic. But almost everybody in America knows people personally or just maybe one step removed or by reputation, knows people who are very religious and are also very condemning, very self-righteous, you know, very, saying very intemperate things, very narrow, very almost abusive. Now, what do New Yorkers think is the solution to the problem of fanaticism? And it's a problem. Now, here's how most New Yorkers think. They think of Christianity as a spectrum. Right? And on the one end are hypocrites, and they say they're Christians, but they don't really 
believe or live their Christianity. And of course, that's bad. But over here, on this end, you've got the fanatics. These are the people that are so Christian, you know, and they, they over-believe and they over-live and they're all, they, you know, so here's the people who, you know, they say they're Christian and not believing in, and living it. And over here are the fanatics who are over-believing and over-living their Christianity. So what's the solution to, to fanaticism? I think most New Yorkers say, well, why can't we just be in the middle? You know, why don't we just, moderation in all things. You know, Christianity needs to be cut with water. Um, you know, you can't drink it straight. It needs to be, it, it just, it just, you know, you need to, you just, you Christians just need to lighten up, you know. And uh, if you're right in here, not over here, not over here, of course, we don't want you to be hypocrites, but right here, this would be just fine. Then Things would be a lot better. Now, is that what Jesus says? Moderation in all things. For example, here's, a, here's a, uh, another place where he's talking to people about following him, discipleship. And it's actually just exactly like what he's ta- doing here in Mark 1. But listen to this. This is Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, he turns to the large crowd and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How moderate. Huh? What? Do you hear this? First of all, he says, if anyone comes to me, he, he doesn't turn to the crowd and say, well, now, look, some of you can be moderate, but I've got, I just need a few marine types, you know. I need a few good men and women who really want to go all the way with this discipleship stuff. He says, if anyone, there's no double standard. Do you realize that? He turns to the crowd and says, if anyone wants to have anything to do with me, you have to hate your father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, and even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. That's what it means to follow. What is hate? What? And of course, because Jesus actually says a number of places, you're not even allowed to hate your enemies, then what in the world is he talking about here with father and mother? And, and here's what he's saying. He's not calling us to hate actively. He's calling us to hate comparatively. Here's what he's saying. He says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so comprehensively, so supremely, so emotionally, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. Jesus is saying, I will not be used. If there's any conditions on your obedience or following of me, any at all, if, if you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if... You know, I want things to go right, and I, I, I want my career to go right. I want my health to go right. I want my family to go right. And it's not going right. And what's the matter? And what good is it being? Jesus says, if you ever say, I'll, I'll follow you if. What's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. And I will not be a means to an end. I will not be used. If you're going to follow me, I must be the goal. Jesus is saying, Don't come to me because I'm relevant. Don't come to me because I will make you a better person. Don't come to me because I will make you happy. Oh, he says, I will be the most relevant. I am the most relevant. I'm the most fulfilling and I'm the most bettering thing in the universe. But I won't be to you if you come to me for those things. If you come to me to make you better, I can't make you better. If you come to me to make you happy, I can't make you happy. Come to me because I'm your true king. 
Come to me because I'm the, I'm the true king you've been looking, in, looking for in everything else. Come to me because I am all a burning joy and strength. Come to me because I am your true Lord, your true life, your true way, your true end. Well, you say, okay, but what about the fanaticism? <laughs> and the answer is, go back to the first point. Remember the difference. Remember what religion is? In religion, you believe that you have a connection with God because of your right belief and right living. You have a connection with God because of your right, be- your b- right belief and your right living, because morality and religion is advice on how you have to live, and you believe you've got a connection with God because of your right living and right belief. And therefore, you have to feel superior to people who have wrong beliefs and wrong living. And that leads to a slippery slope. If you feel superior to them, then you stay away from them, then you caricature them, you exclude them, you can abuse them, you can oppress them. But if you believe the gospel, if you understand the difference between advice and the gospel, see, if you believe you are a sinner saved by sheer grace, then when you meet somebody of a different worldview, you expect them to be better than you often. Why? Because you weren't saved because of your right belief and your right behavior. And not only that, you serve a man who died on the cross for you when you didn't have the right beliefs and the right behavior. So how in the world could you possibly feel superior? And suddenly you begin to realize something. Fanatics are so, not because they've gone too far and too committed to Jesus, but because they haven't gone far enough. You see, fanatics might look a little bit like Jesus, you know, throwing the money changes out of the temple. Fanatics might be fanatically bold like Jesus, but they're not fanatically humble and fanatically sensitive and fanatically melt-in-your-mouth understanding and sweet to the moral outsiders like Jesus always was. Why? Because they actually haven't grasped the gospel that they're sinners saved by grace. If you see an extremist, if you see a fanatic, they're not so because they've gone too far with Jesus, they haven't gone far enough. They're not fanatically like him in fully orbed way. They're not completely like him. They're only partly like him because they haven't gone, they're not completely committed to him and his truth. They only understand part of it. If you are an extremist or a fanatic, it's because you're not extremely fanatically committed to Christ enough. And if you are extremely fanatically committed to Christ and his grace and understand his, his calling, then you won't look like an extremist to anybody else. Extreme with Jesus, kind to everyone else. See? Halfway with Jesus could be an extremist with everybody else. So, the call of Jesus is different. The call of Jesus is drastic. The call of Jesus, thirdly, is developmental. Now, developmental. It's a process. Look at verse 17. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to correct the translation here. And I always hate to do that, but we got to. The translation wrongly puts it, and I'll tell you what it says. Verse 17, Jesus says, Come, follow me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. The journey, the idea of a following is a journey. It's a process. Jesus is not stationary. He doesn't say, come learn of me, you know, and I'll give you all the material. He says, follow me. I'm on a journey. I'm on a way. So first of all, there's a process with the term follow. But then ultimately, actually, I don't know why so many of the modern translations drop it, but it's right there in the Greek. Jesus does not say, I'll make you fishers of men on the spot. He says, I will put you into a process as you follow me of becoming a fishers of men. Now, that's the, that's the journey. The process is developmental. But what's the goal? Fishers of men. What is that? You may think, and I used to think that I knew until I really started thinking this out and studying a little better. In biblical imagery, 
and Hebrew symbolism, the sea, the water, is actually a place of chaos and death, of darkness, of coldness. It's a pl- it's, it represents the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. Now, what is wrong? I mean, what makes the kingdom of darkness dark? What makes it so chaotic? We already talked about it. Self-centeredness, self-kingship, you might say. Self-centeredness. It's what's destroying you psychologically. It's what makes you brood. It's what makes you feel self-pity. It's what makes you feel, uh, you know, absorbed with what, what's me, me, me. It's the thing that's just psychologically destroying us and socially. That's what's, that's what's going on. And what is Jesus saying here? I will make you fishers of men. I'll make you someone who knows how to draw people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Have you ever come into the sphere of influence of somebody who internally is so happy, so well-adjusted, so emotionally full, that they're not thinking about themselves at all? They're thinking about you. Have you ever come into the, inf- into the in- sphere of influence of somebody who, instead of using you and, and, uh, for their own purposes or exploiting you, just serves you? just puts his or her resources practically and spiritually and emotionally at your service. It's like coming out of the darkness because, that, see, the, it's like coming out of the dog-eat-dog world of New York where everybody's out for themselves and you always have to watch your back. And when you come into the realm of someone like that, that's a fisher of men. That's someone who has been healed of their own self-absorption and in their own self-centeredness and now can turn around and begin to draw other people into the light of serving God and serving others. But to get there takes a journey. When Jesus Christ tells the disciples, we're on the way, follow me, I'm on my way. They had no idea where he was going. They thought he was going to go from strength to strength to strength to strength. They had no idea. Within a few months, they were running for their lives, failing, betraying, and that was the way Jesus was going to be turning them into fishers of men. When, if you, for example, let's, let's, just, let's just say you've fallen in love and you're married. Sit down with a seven-year-old and say to the seven-year-old, I would like you to write me an essay on what you think it's like to fall in love and be married. And when you read the essay, you will say, this isn't very close to the reality. Because a seven-year-old can't imagine quite what it's going to be like. You are at least that far away. When you start on the journey with Jesus, when you start to follow Jesus, you're at least that far away. And further than that, you have no idea what it's going to take, how far you're going to have to go, what you're going to have to go through to become someone who is starting to get so healed of your self-absorption that you can become a fisher of men, that you can be drawing people out of the darkness into the light. But I'll tell you this, the disciples had no idea it was going to be that hard. Here's how it works. Jesus says, follow me. You know what that means? He says, I'm going to be taking you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to obey me. I want you to put me first. I want you to always do my will. I want you to keep praying. I want you to keep obeying the part of the will, my will that you understand. I want you to stick with me, not turn back, not give up, not go to the left, not go to the right, and just go through all the nasty stuff that's going to happen to you in your life, and that will make you into fishers of men. I'm going to take you places, and you're going to say, why in the world are you taking me there? Because that's, you see, how Jesus got to save the world. He went to the biggest dead end. Um... George MacDonald wrote a book 
uh, children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. He also wrote another book called The Princess and Curdie. You can eat, they're great books. Wrote them 150 years ago. You can get them in the Barnes & Noble still. They're in print. I don't think they've ever been out of print. And it tells us, in The Princess and the Goblin, it tells the story of Irene, and she's eight years old, and she lives in a great big house, and she's found that in the the attic room of her house, a woman appears, her grandmother, a fairy grandmother, appears every so often. She's often not there when she goes to look for her, but sometimes she appears, and she brings Irene up, and they talk, and she loves her grandmother. And her fairy grandmother makes her wise and teaches her, and is sort of like her guardian and so forth. And one day, her grandmother appears and gives her a ring tied with a thread tied on it, attached to a little ball of thread. And Irene's grandmother said, I'm giving you this ring with this thread attached to it, and and I will keep the ball. I don't see it, grandmother, says Irene. Oh, the thread is too fine to see, dear one. You can only feel it. Oh, I do feel it. There. There. Now, said the grandmother, if you ever find yourself in danger, this is what you must do. You must take off the ring, put it under the pillow of your bed, lay your forefinger upon the thread, and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful, Irene said. It will lead me to you, grandmother. I know, and therefore I'll be safe. Yes, said the grandmother, but it may seem a very roundabout way indeed. You must not doubt the thread. No matter where it takes you, just remember, while you hold one end, I hold the other. A few days later, she's in bed in the dark, and the goblins get into the house. And she hears them snarling out in the hallway, and she's afraid, but she has the presence of mind to take off her ring and put it under the pillow, and she begins to feel the thread, and she says, good, It's going to take me to grandmother and to safety. But to her dismay, instead of taking her up the back steps to the top, you know, of the house, it takes her outside. And then as she keeps on following the thread, she comes to realize it's taking her right toward the cave of the goblins. And when she keeps on following the thread into the cave, it leads her right up to a rock wall, a wall of stones, a heap of stones, dead end. A thought struck her. She could follow the thread backward and at least get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backward, it vanished from her touch. Grandmother's thread only worked forward. But forward, it led into a heap of stones. Backward, it seemed nowhere. Irene burst into a wailing cry and threw herself down on the stones. But after crying, she realized, I've got to follow my thread. So she gets up and she decides the only way to follow the thread is to start tearing down the wall of stones. So she's tearing it down and pulling them down and pulling them down. Her fingers are bleeding and she pulls and pulls. And next thing you know, she suddenly hears a voice and it's her friend Curdie who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. And Curdie's astounded. And he says, how did you ever find me? My grandmother sent me. Irene said, I had no idea why she had me come this way, but now I know why. So Curdie says, great, I'm out. And he starts to go back up out of the cave, but the thread keeps going down deeper into the cave. Irene says, I'm sorry. We got to follow the thread. Curdie says, where are you going? That's not the way out. There, that's where I couldn't get out. I know, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. I know it doesn't make sense, but if I'd given up on it before, would I look so foolish? I would never have rescued you. I must follow my thread, whatever I do. That's all Jesus is saying to you. Jesus says, I have got a vision for your glory to turn you into a fisher of men, to heal 
the pride and self-centeredness that is ruining your life. But the path I take you on will look like it's taking you to one dead end after another, but the thread does not work backward. You've got to follow the thread. Not to the right, not to the left. If you just obey me, it will do its work. It'll make you something great. It'll turn you into somebody who, who can change lives. And George MacDonald, the guy who wrote the, the, you know, the book, later on in another essay put it like this. He said, the one secret of life and development is not to devise and plan, but to do the moment's duty aright, and then to let come not what will, for there is no such thing, but what the eternal one wills for each of us and has intended in each of us from the first. You will be dead so long as you refuse to die. You will be dead so long as you refuse to die to yourself. Follow the thread. Now you say, that sounds pretty hard. And of course, by the way, it's dangerous to follow the thread. John the Baptist did, verse 14. He's in prison. He's going to get killed. How do we do this? How can we possibly do it? In some ways, it's simple, but profound. You have to see Jesus doing absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When you see him calling James and John to leave his father in the boat, he'd already left his father's throne. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. And later, he's going to lose his father forever, infinitely, on the cross. Are you safe? What do you mean forever? Because when he lost his father on the cross, he experienced infinite loss, hell itself. Jesus Christ followed his thread into hell so that if you follow your thread, it'll just take you to heaven into the bosom of your father. He followed his thread into destruction. You can follow your thread into greatness. But it's, it's constantly going to look like it's taking you into dead ends, places where you're just going to have to get bloody saying the only, way to, the only way to follow this thread is, is to just start tearing things apart, but I'm not going to go backwards. I'm not going to turn to the left. I'm not going to turn to the right. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. He followed his thread into hell so that you could follow yours into his arms. Let's pray. Our Father, we want Jesus... We want him to help us. We want him to make us happy. We want us to make us spiritual. But he calls us to follow him as, his, as the true king of our hearts and souls. Help us each to apply this to our lives as we have heard this call tonight. Through the Gospel of Mark, he says it again. Follow me. And I pray that we would all answer because that's the way of perfect freedom in life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.